How do you judge what a great artist is? Or what makes someone a great musician or a great writer? How do you judge what a, what a great cafe is or restaurant or bar or theatre? What measures do you use? Would it be aesthetics and beauty or originality and uniqueness? Or is it just popular opinion? Just follow the crowd. And how about family? What makes a great family? Is it a good work-life balance? Is it having a house in the right area? Is it just having peace under your roof, having, having a happy family and quiet kids? Um, but what about you personally? How do you judge your own greatness? Is it the recognition that you get, the awards and the certificates and the degrees, the letters that you have after your name? Or is it your own personal sense of achievement and fulfilment? Or maybe it's your style and sense of fashion. Or maybe it's your passport, how widely travelled you are. Or maybe it's your fitness and your health. What do you think is the mark of a truly great life? What are the things that you are pursuing, that you want to be known for, and that would make your life truly great? We all have standards of greatness. And the thing is, we tend to compare ourselves to others based on our own standards. We look at someone and we ask, either consciously or subconsciously, we just can't help ourselves, am I better than them? We try and figure out a social hierarchy and rank ourselves and put ourselves on a list from the least the greatest. We want to be seen as the one who's richer or smarter or who has more stuff or has a better house or goes to the right cafes or wears the right clothes. But this morning, we're going to see Jesus's standard of greatness and who he thinks is truly great. And we'll see it's not based on any external measure so that we could compare ourselves with one another, but it's based on God's generous grace to us that we were on the bottom of all those lists of greatness. We were the least because of our sin. But God has given us true greatness by making us part of his kingdom. So I'd love you to get your Bibles out. We're going to be continuing our series in Luke and looking at Luke chapter 7 from verse 18. Now, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one as our gift today. We believe this book is God's word that it's powerful, that it has good news that can transform your life. So if you don't have a Bible, if you want to find out more about Jesus, you can pick up a Bible from our Connect table after our gathering. We'd love to give that to you today as our gift. Let me pray before we open God's Word. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us clearly and that you have sent your Son, Jesus, into this world who lived a truly great life. Lord, we ask that you would show us your greatness today that you would show us how we can be truly great by being part of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to look at Luke 7 from verse 18, if you've got your Bibles there. Luke 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, to Jesus. Oh, sorry. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, to John the Baptist. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? 
In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptised with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptised by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he's got a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. All right, so last week when Steve was preaching to us, we saw Jesus perform some amazing miracles. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, and word has spread everywhere about Jesus. This week's passage flows straight on from last week, as John the Baptist's disciples bring him word of all that Jesus has been doing. But the first thing we see John doing is doubting. John is doubting whether Jesus is really the Christ. He sends two of his disciples back to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? If anyone in Luke's story so far should know that Jesus is the one, should know that Jesus is the Christ, it should be John. He had a miraculous birth to a mother who was old and barren, well past the age of having kids. God told John's parents that John would play an important role in God's plans, that he'd be full of the Holy Spirit, that he'd prepare the way for the Messiah. When John was out in the, de in the desert, baptizing people and calling them to repent, John says that the Christ is coming. Then when John baptizes Jesus, he sees the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove and he hears a voice from heaven call out, you are the one, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. If anyone in Luke's story should know that this is the Christ, it should be John, but he's doubting. Why is John doubting? For John... There's a gap between his expectations and his experience. The last thing that Luke told us is that John was locked up in prison for rebuking King Herod for having an affair with his sister-in-law. 
Now, John was probably expecting Jesus to do something spectacular and immediately bring the kingdom of God, including liberating the prisoners, getting him out of jail. But so far, all Jesus has done is teach and heal. John's thinking, what's going on? If Jesus was really the Christ, he'd be busting me out of prison. Is he going to bring the kingdom or not? Well, like John, there's often a gap between our expectations and our experiences too. What we believe about God, it just sometimes doesn't match our circumstances. And rather than simply trusting Jesus in that gap, we're prone to have an unbelieving heart, just like John. We've seen God's goodness in our lives. We've known His faithfulness and His grace. And yet when we experience difficult circumstances, we can be rocked by doubts. For you, you might be struggling with sin and you question whether you're really saved. How could God love me when my life is so messed up? Or you might have lost a loved one and you just can't understand how God could let that happen. Or we doubt if Jesus is ever going to come back. It's been 2,000 years, hasn't it? Is he ever going to come back and fix up my life? Is he ever going to come back and fix up our world? Or we just question the whole thing. Does God even exist? Am I just living a lie? How can we stay afloat when we find ourselves in that gap between our expectations and our experiences? Well, the first thing that I want to say is that doubt is not out of bounds for the Christian life. Later in this story, Jesus calls John the greatest man who ever lived. So if John the greatest man ever, doubted God, I think it's probably okay if we go through seasons of doubt as as well. But even though doubt isn't out of bounds, that doesn't mean that we should cuddle up to doubt. It's not a good thing to stay living in shades of grey, never really sure of what's true or what we believe. Doubt will always take us in one of two directions. It'll either end up in faith or unbelief. What's really important is not whether you doubt or not, because we're all going to go through seasons of doubt, but what you do with your doubt. What did John the Baptist do? He went to Jesus. He went to Jesus to get answers to his questions. So let me encourage you to take your doubts to God in prayer. Ask God to reveal the truth to you, to strengthen your faith. God, our loving Father, is patient and kind, and He delights in answering our prayers, just like an earthly father loves to give good gifts to his children. Also, don't hold back from asking the questions that are on your heart. Christianity isn't blind faith. It's not a step in the dark. It's rooted in the historical reality of Jesus' death and resurrection to deal with our sins. It can withstand questions. So ask the hard questions together. You're not the only one that's struggling with doubt. We've all got questions. So let's pursue truth together. Your faith will grow and our community will be stronger because of it. So what are the circumstances in your life that bring you doubt? What are the questions that you're wrestling with right now? How will you stay afloat when you find yourself in that gap between your expectations and your experience? Will you throw in the towel and give up? Or will you keep trusting Jesus while asking those hard questions together? 
So John sends his doubts to Jesus. How does Jesus respond? Well, have a look at verse 21. Notice that Jesus doesn't give John's disciples a straight answer. He doesn't talk first. What does he do? Well, he does. He acts. He heals people of diseases and evil spirits. He restores the sight of the blind. He then tells them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. But the thing is, John's disciples have already seen all this before. Do you remember the verse 18 that we first looked at? These are the same reports that they've already taken to Jesus at the very start of the passage. What they want is verbal confirmation. Jesus saying, yes, yes, I am the Christ. But he just gives them actions. What's he doing? Well, I think it's like Jesus is saying to them, if you want to know who I am, take a look at what I've done. Now, if you've been here throughout this series in Luke, you might remember at the very start of Jesus' ministry, how he stood up in the synagogue, unrolled the scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and read it out and said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Does anyone remember that? What Jesus is doing here in chapter 7, in his ministry, it's almost identical to what he read out from the scroll in Isaiah. Jesus is pointing John's disciples back to that scripture and making connections with what he's doing. He's trying to spell it out really clearly for them. This is what you're seeing. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. Does that sound familiar? Can you see the connections? This scripture is being fulfilled in me. To answer John's questions, yes! Can't you see? I am the Christ. I am the one who was to come. How can they know who Jesus is? They've got to look at what he's doing. So what about us? How can we know who God is? How can we know what God is like? It's in the same way, isn't it? We've got to look at what he has done. So what do we see in this passage? We see that John is concerned that Jesus is concerned about the poor, the sick, and the oppressed. He doesn't care only about the spiritual conditions of our hearts. He cares about our physical bodies. Jesus is full of compassion and love for our broken world. As we read throughout the scriptures, we see that God loved the world so much that he gave his son Jesus to die on the cross to save it. That is how we can know what God is like. Do you know this God who gave his son for you? Have you experienced this love of God in your life? The cross wasn't some random event that happened in the backwaters of the Roman Empire some 2,000 years ago. The cross is the greatest demonstration of God's love for you. If you're not a Christian yet, we're really, really glad you're here. I'm sure you've got heaps of questions about life and God and Jesus and the Bible and what all this church stuff is all about. Let me encourage you to keep checking Jesus out. That is how we can know who God is through his son, Jesus. Grab a Bible and see what Jesus did for yourself. See how God has revealed himself in our history. We'd love to help you on your journey of faith. You can ask us anything. There's no question that's out of bounds or that's too hard. Anchor Church is a safe place for you to discover for yourself who Jesus is and what he's done for you.
Well, once Jesus makes the connection between what he's done and who he is, blindingly obvious for John's disciples, he leaves them with, I think, a tricky phrase in verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Does that sound tricky? I thought that was tricky when I was looking at it. What does that mean? Well, John's expectations so far, they haven't been met by Jesus. Jesus is not the kind of Christ John was expecting. There was a gap between his expectations and his experience, wasn't there? And I think Jesus is saying back to John, look, mate, you've got all the information you need to know that I am the Christ. I'm not the wrong kind of Christ. You've got the wrong kind of expectations. You've got to take me as you see me. You are blessed if you see and believe and are not offended by me. And I think this is a word for us as well. What are your expectations of Jesus? Do you expect that Jesus will just be there whenever you need him, but you can really forget about him day to day? Do you expect that Jesus will forgive you, but not really care if you keep on sinning or live without him? We can't make Jesus up the way that we want him to be. Jesus is a real person, and often he doesn't fit our expectations. We need to take Jesus exactly as he shows himself to us, as a saviour and as a king. That means that Jesus isn't the one who needs to change. Guess who needs to change? We need to change. God's work in our life is to change us. God wants to change our expectations. He wants to transform our minds. He wants to change our hearts from the inside out. When we encounter Jesus, He takes hold of our lives and radically transforms us. He gives us a brand new life to live for Him. Well, after John's disciples leave and go back to try and change John's expectations about Jesus, Jesus turns to the crowds and addresses their expectations about John. In verse 24, he says, When you went out to see John in the wilderness, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind, a man in soft clothes. What's Jesus talking about? What is this about? Well, both of these images are royal images. The reed was on the royal coins commissioned by Herod Antipas in the first century. Jesus himself says that the soft clothing is referring to someone who's in the king's court. Jesus is comparing John with a king. The king was the epitome of greatness in the ancient world. But what do you see when you look at John? He doesn't look much like a king, does he? He's living out in the desert. He's eating weird food. He's eating locusts and honey. He's wearing weird clothes. He's wearing camel's fur. He's preaching that the end of the world is coming. He's saying crazy stuff. John doesn't look that great to me, particularly if you line him up next to a king. But in verse 26, Jesus is saying that among those born of women, none is greater than John. Jesus calls John a prophet. But for those listening, they've had a rich history of amazing prophets and men of God. For the Jews, they're thinking, hang on, Abraham? John can't be greater than Abraham. Moses? Samuel? King David? Elijah? John the, surely John the Baptist can't be greater than any of them. Well, anyone who knows me knows that I love soccer. 
And anyone who knows soccer knows that the World Cup was recently on in Brazil. And I got up to watch quite a few games in the morning. Was anyone, anyone else? Anyone else watching the World Cup? Well, if your standard for greatness was watching the World Cup, as my standard for greatness is, uh, it's only, the only ones that are great here are those who put their hands up and were watching the World Cup. If that's your standard for greatness, then if you didn't watch anything, if you weren't at all interested, I don't think I can get down on the floor, but like you're pretty low down there. If you followed some of the news headlines, if you watched some of the news reports, then that's a bit higher again. If you got up early in the morning and sacrificed some sleep to watch the games, then yeah, that's pretty good. I had a mate who got up every single morning early to watch every minute of every game. So I'd be ranking him pretty high. But imagine that you went to Brazil and you were in the stadium watching the game with your own eyes. Where would you rank that person? Surely he would... Like that, that's got to be right up there, doesn't it? You're right there experiencing the action firsthand. That scale of greatness that we just went through, that's relative to your proximity to the action. And it's the same here for John the Baptist. John was the greatest because of his proximity to the kingdom of God. All those prophets that we talked about, Abraham, Moses, King David... Well, they were all looking forward, waiting for the day when God would come and rescue his people and establish his kingdom on earth. John is the only prophet to actually see the coming of God's king. He's right there, right there in the stadium watching the action. He had a special role in God's plan to prepare the way for God's Messiah. John is the greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus, because of his proximity to the kingdom of God. He's right there. Jesus then says in the second half of verse 26, Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. How can this be? Jesus has just said John's the greatest who ever lived, and now he's saying there's someone who's even greater than him. Well, if Jesus' standard for greatness is proximity to the kingdom of God, well, John saw the coming of the king, but he never actually finally saw the coming of the kingdom. It was only through Jesus' death and resurrection that the kingdom of God fully came in power. The cross was a watershed moment in history that separates the time of promise, where all God's people were waiting, 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 waiting for the promises to be fulfilled, waiting for God to come as king. And that's where John sits. It separates that time from The time of the kingdom where all those promises are fulfilled. The kingdom of God comes in power. John never saw this day come. He died just short. He died before Jesus did. He died waiting for the kingdom of God. But for us, on this side of the cross, we live in the age of the kingdom. We've received the kingdom of God in our own lives. If John was watching the World Cup in the stadium, right up there close to the action, it's like we're actually on the field. We're playing in the game. We are part of the kingdom of God. So who here thinks that they are greater than John the Baptist? Anyone? Who thinks they are greater than John the Baptist? This guy's in the Bible. Are you greater than someone in the Bible? 
Well, Jesus is saying, yes, if you are a Christian, you are greater than John the Baptist because you're in the kingdom of God. Jesus' standard of greatness is whether you are in the kingdom of God. Now, I want to spend a bit of time now comparing our standards of greatness that we thought a little bit about at the start with Jesus' standard. What's the difference? Well, I think our standards of greatness, they're almost universally performance-based standards of greatness, whereas Jesus has a grace-based standard of greatness. As I was preparing this sermon, uh, my wife Catherine challenged me to consider what my own standards of greatness were. What are the things that I measure my greatness by? What are the standards that I have for a great life? And I think for me, you know, I want to have a happy family. I want to make Catherine happy, my daughter Eva, ha- Eva happy. And so if things are going well for us as a family, if we're happy, then I think then I'm feeling pretty great. I think also my greatness is based on my performance, my results in exams, uh, whether I've done a good job, have I prepared a good sermon, have people praised me for doing a good job, my own personal sense of achievement. I think it's also tied to what people think of me. Does that person like me? Do they, do they think I'm valuable? Do they think I'm great? It's also tied to my reputation. I want to be seen as someone who's trustworthy and dependable, that I can get the job done, that I'll do it well. I want to be the go-to guy. But when I sit back and compare my list of greatness to Jesus' standard of greatness... Well, my list, it's largely based on my performance or on people's perception of me. It depends on me doing a good job or me making myself great, me coming out on top of the list. But the problem that we all have is that no matter how hard we try to make ourselves great, in the eyes of God, we are not great because of our sin. We fall far short of God's standards in what we think, say, and do. If I was having a performance review at work based on my record before God, I'd go into the boss's office and there would be grounds for dismissal everywhere in my review. There's nothing on my record that could redeem me or that the boss could say, job well done. But when we have our performance review with God, he doesn't look at our messed up record God looks at Jesus' perfect record. See, Jesus tops all the lists of greatness where we came out on the bottom. He succeeds in all the areas where we failed. The good news of the gospel is that when we were on the bottom of the list, when we were the least, Jesus credited God's greatness to our account so that we could be seen as great in his eyes and enter the kingdom of God. My greatness in the eyes of God, it's not based on what I've done for myself. It's based on what Jesus has done for me. He lived the perfect life in place of my sinful life. He died the death that I deserve to pay the price for my sin. Jesus rose again from the dead in victory over sin and death to give me a new life. And he now reigns as king in God's kingdom. By trusting in Jesus, my sins are forgiven. And he gives me his greatness. So when God looks at me, he doesn't see my woeful performance. He sees Jesus' perfect performance. His true 
greatness because of God's grace. Now, with our performance-based standards of greatness, we tend to value the people who come out on top of our lists. But Jesus values the ones at the bottom of the list. Jesus values the least. And you see this so clearly in his life and ministry. Think about the people Jesus is hanging out with in this passage. He's hanging out with the poor, the sick, the blind, the demon-possessed, those scumbag tax collectors. He's hanging out with the outcasts, the lowest of the low, the nobodies that no one cares about. Now, our tendency is to look down on those guys, to see them as somehow less than us, according to our own standards of greatness. But when we look at the poor, when we look at the outcasts, we need to understand that really we are looking in a mirror at our own hearts. See, we were the ones who were in spiritual poverty because of our sin. We were the outcasts because of our rebellion against God. But our King Jesus, he left everything. He gave everything. He left the riches of heaven and humbled himself to die for us so that we could become part of God's kingdom. God's judgment on us isn't that we're great because of anything we've done ourselves, but because he saved us when we were at our worst, when we were still sinners, when we were on the bottom of the list, Christ died for us. He made us great when we were the least. And this means there's no room for pride in the Christian life. God's grace should fill us with compassion and love for those who we naturally tend to think are less than us because this was the same attitude that Jesus showed to us. When we have Jesus' grace-based standards of greatness, we start seeing ourselves and we start seeing those around us with with the same eyes that God used to look at us. But this also means that if you think you're worthless, if you think you're not valuable, if you think you're not special to anyone, if you're on the bottom of the list according to our standards, if you're not great in the eyes of the world, you need to see how God sees you. You need to see how valuable and special you are to God. Don't judge yourself by the standards of this world. It's a false standard. It's not the standard that God, our Creator and Redeemer, uses to judge true greatness. God loved the world so much that he sent his precious son, Jesus, for you so that you, he could have you as part of his family, so that he could call you his dearly loved son or daughter. The true standard for greatness is not what other people think of you. It's what God thinks of you and whether you're in the kingdom of God. Well, you might think, why does, it, why does any of this matter? Why, does it, why is it important? I've got my standard for greatness. You've got your standard for greatness. Jesus has his standard for greatness. I don't care what standard you use for greatness. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because eternity is at stake. There will come a day when God will judge the world. He'll divide the greatest from the least and it won't be using our standards of greatness. It will be using his kingdom standard. The measure he will use is how you have responded to Jesus and whether you are in his kingdom. If if you are in the kingdom, even if you have nothing else in this life, he will judge you to be great and you'll enjoy eternal life with God. If you're not in the kingdom of God, then no matter how well you've done in this life, 
no matter how great everyone else thinks you, you are, no matter how many of those lists you have topped, you won't have the one thing that is necessary to be judged as great by the one whose judgment counts for eternity. It's like what Jesus said to his disciples, what good is it to gain the whole world but to lose your soul for eternity? What good is it to be considered great in all those other standards but to fall short in the one standard that matters? See, the reality that we see in this passage is you can't be really great without being in the kingdom of God. You can't be truly great without being in the kingdom. The poor and the rich, the greatest and the least, they're in the same boat in the eyes of God. Lost in sin, without hope in the face of God's judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that God has made a way for your sin to be dealt with and to bring you into his kingdom through Jesus Christ, his son. You can't buy your way into the kingdom of God. You can't sweet talk your way into the kingdom. The only way you can enter the kingdom of God is through the forgiveness of sins because of Jesus' death on the cross for you. If you want true greatness, the only place that can be found is in God's kingdom. Well, we see two different responses to Jesus' standard of greatness from the crowd. Have a look at verse 29 and 30. First, there are those who respond positively to the good news of the kingdom. They've been baptized by the greatest prophet of all for the forgiveness of sins, and now they are in the kingdom of God. So no matter how small they feel, they are great in the eyes of God. They're greater even than John the Baptist. And so how do they respond? They respond by worshiping God, declaring him just, that his way is right and good. If we have been saved by God, this should be our response as well. Praising God for his goodness to us. Worshipping him for saving us when we were at our worst, when we were the least. But then there are also the Pharisees and the lawyers who rejected God's purpose for their lives. They weren't baptised. What a terrible thing. What a terrible thing to reject God's purpose for your life. This is your creator who made you, who knows what's best for you and will one day come to judge the world. What a fearful thing to reject the all-powerful God who has the power both to save and to judge. Now at the moment, I don't know what's happening in your life, but you might look at Jesus and he just doesn't meet your expectations. He's not the guy you want him to be. You look at John and compare him to the king and he really doesn't look all that great. You look at the poor, the blind, the sick, the sinners. You look at me and all these other crazy Christians at anchor and you're like, those guys are crazy. I, I judge them down here, not up here with Jesus' standards. But the thing is, appearances can be deceiving. All is not as it seems. There will come a great day of reversal where those lists are going to be turned upside down. Things will be shown as they really are in the eyes of God. As Jesus says in verse 35, right at the end of our passage, wisdom is justified by her children. The proud will fall 
the great in the eyes of the world will be brought low, and the least will be raised up to take their place in the everlasting kingdom of God. So where will you stand when that great day comes? How will you respond to this message of the kingdom of God? Will you respond rightly to God coming to Jesus for forgiveness of sins and true greatness in his kingdom? Or will you be like the Pharisees, rejecting God's purpose for your life and falling under his judgment? If you're not a Christian, then maybe today is the, God that, is the day that God is calling you into his kingdom to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, to receive true, lasting greatness. If you're feeling convicted right now that you need to be made right with God, then after the sermon, Steve and I are going to be over in the foyer, just over there. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to chat with you. We're going to come now to a time of response to worship our great King Jesus, who shows us what true greatness is really like. We're going to remember all that he has done for us on the cross. Either side of the stage, we have some bread and some grape juice, two symbols of Jesus' death. On the night Jesus was betrayed and handed over to be crucified, he had dinner with his disciples and he broke bread with them. The bread symbolized his body, which was broken for them on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. The wine symbolized his blood, which was poured out for them. Today, we eat the bread, we drink the juice to remember what Jesus has done for us. So if you have something to remember, if you have something to celebrate in the cross of Christ, then we invite you to come forward during our response time, during worship, and to take the Lord's Supper and remember what Jesus has done for you. If you need prayer, this, if you've got anything going on in your life, if you've got doubts, if you want to become a Christian, anything that's happening, Steve and I will be over there. We'd love to pray for you and to support you. But I'm going to pray for us now as the band comes up and then we'll have our time of response and worship. Let's pray. Father, so often we judge ourselves according to our own standards. We think we're great. We think we top the lists. But... In your eyes, we fall far short. We know that we're at the bottom. We ask that you will give us your eyes right now to see ourselves truly the way that you see us. We ask that you will help us to come to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and so that we might be seen as truly great in your eyes. We thank you for all that he did for us, that he died on the cross for us to pay the penalty for our sins. We thank you that you rose him from the dead in victory over sin and death, so that we could have a new life. And we just want to praise you today. We want to worship you and thank you for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.